Hello again. Welcome to this week's episode of Knowing God with Heart and Mind. I'm Pastor Dan, and this is our virtual church classroom where we seek to know God's heart and mind and then have our own heart and mind changed in the process. Our goal is pretty simple. We want to dive deeper in our relationship with God, our Creator, our Heavenly Father, our Lord and Son and Savior, Jesus Christ, and our Holy Spirit and Paraclete, that one who comes alongside us through all of life's journey, the Holy Spirit. And so we come together for this divine purpose once a week to uh, study other aspects of our Christian doctrine that uh, are contained in the words of the Nicene Creed, but uh, we really flesh them out. We're in this process now for seven weeks. This is the seventh lesson, and it is about the covenant-making God that uh, we are in relationship with. And so, in a few minutes, we're going to talk about God and God's uh, covenants and our relationship with God as it's understood through covenant. But uh, first, a couple of quick announcements. found ourselves in uh, Jasper in particular in a sort of strange twilight. Uh, We did not get the full coverage. Uh, That is to say the moon did not block out the entire sun here, but it blocked out enough for us to have a very strange darkness And uh, it was kind of interesting as it passed into this eerie twilight to see this this sort of of, uh, washed out golden hue uh, cast to the ground from the heavens above. And what I found particularly fascinating were the shadows. Uh, We have lovely trees in our backyard and they are... Uh, on most of these summer days, casting a mixture of shade and sun and a sort of dappled, uh, uh, speckled sort of texture in my backyard in the grass. And and uh, what was so neat is that right around the time of the fullest of the eclipse, all of those shadows turned into crescents. And so everywhere where the sun shone through between the leaves and the branches of the trees, it cast a golden sort of uh, crescent onto the ground and in some places there might be dozens and dozens of these little crescents sort of lapping over each other and really kind of an amazing uh, bit of natural artwork that only can be seen under those circumstances and it was quite remarkable. Uh, the people watching is pretty remarkable as people stopped all over this country to observe the eclipse and to look through their dark, dark, dark glasses and see something that be by its very rarity is, uh, is worth stopping to look at. And uh, it was kind of fascinating. And of course, like most Christians, I kept trying to imagine certain parallels and certain uh, 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 religious significance, but not like some of the Christians I've seen on YouTube, for example. I wasn't looking for it to be the harbinger of some sort of of doom and gloom, but rather I was thinking to myself, now when Christ returns, won't all the people of the world stop and look up 
just as we did in this country as millions of Americans stopped to look up? Won't it be fascinating to see how the world responds when Christ comes? And won't it be amazing in its uh, global effect instead of its regional effect? Now, like a lot of people, I saw the eclipse as a fascination that people have with this solar phenomenon, and I marveled at the age we live in because this is a time, perhaps one of the earliest times in human history, where uh, there were actually people looking at it with joy and fascination rather than fear and loathing. Um, you know, some of the past occurrences have found us less aware and less informed. Uh, I, I remember the first eclipses of, the, uh, of my lifetime that I called and how terrified we were to look at it because we had had our teachers and our mothers and our fathers and all the people around us who are our elders warning us against staring at it and having our blinded eyes uh, never recover, you know, and, and so we were terrified to look at it for fear of the danger to our eyes. So we weren't afraid of it as a sort of spooky, mysterious thing but simply because we'd been warned so severely that we might go blind having looked at it. And uh, so what I found interesting this time was that now millions and millions of Americans were equipped with glasses so that they could actually look at the eclipse without hurting their eyes and witness the phenomenon in a way that you would only be able to see uh, on your television or, or uh, at the local planetarium or something, you know. So it's amazing to me how well-informed our people are in our nation and in our world these days. And yet there are places, I'm sure, where when these sorts of things occur, there is still ignorance and fear. I believe that that is one of the best aspects of being a believer, a follower in Christ. Once we experience this uh, relationship with God, the fear of the unknown changes drastically in our lives. And the more we know God and the more we walk with God and the more we we uh, experience life, whether good or bad, with God, the more confident we are that uh, we're okay. And uh, I have to imagine that when the day comes when much of what God has stated plainly in God's promises to the people that God has set apart, uh, when these things come to pass, there will be those who will be terrified by them. And it will be mainly because of their ignorance. So matters of faith are those things that we take without knowing for sure. But that isn't the same as going into it ignorant. One of the reasons for studying Scripture, one of the reasons for studying our um, uh, covenants with God through, through uh, the, the relationship God has with the church on earth, and one of the reasons for studying our doctrine and things like that is so that we might be informed, so that we might be uh, not taken by surprise when... God's promises are fulfilled in our midst. This is the reason we do this study. This is so that we can know God with heart and mind and therefore be 
in a kind of relationship with God that leads us to an understanding of God's activity in the world, whether it is something small and gentle and sweet or whether it is something large in scale that affects all of humanity and all of time and space. The Bible tells us we can look for all of those things in that range, from the still small voice to the global disruption. These are all signs from God, all things that God says and does that won't surprise us if we are well-read in Scripture and informed by our uh, relationship with God and the presence of the Holy Spirit. This week's episode of Knowing God with Heart and Mind is Lesson 7, God Makes a Covenant with Us, and it is about God's particular relationship with with us and the way that God chooses the terms and the participants. It's sort of God-initiated, and that's where God's covenants are a little different. And, uh, and yet a covenant is still basically the same as far as its fundamental nature. So that's what we're going to talk about. But first, we need to take a moment to pray. And uh, as we pray, I want you to consider some of these questions in your process. Um, since we're all sort of uh, covenant makers in one way or another, we have to ask ourselves a few pertinent questions about the relationships with whom we make covenant. Most common, most best understood covenant relationship in our society is the covenant of marriage. And uh, marriage has taken some pretty hard hits in our, in our communities and our, our Western world these days. It's considered old-fashioned to actually enter into a marriage covenant. And yet, I would be among those who would argue that with or without a written contract, with or without a license registered at the local courthouse, if two people live together and share all of the elements of a marriage that were traditional, then they are bound by a covenant that is not theirs in its uh, formal nature, but it's theirs in the reality of their relationship. If two people live together and they share a space and they share responsibility for the children they create and they share the various responsibilities they have to creditors and to uh, employers and things like that, then they're in a covenant relationship and the only thing that makes it different is the fact that it's not registered at the courthouse. When I was growing up, they had something called a common law marriage, and basically all that meant was is that if two people lived together for more than seven years, they were married whether or not they actually actually went down to the courthouse and got a license. So what is a covenant then? If covenant isn't something that we openly participate in, then what is it if we are in covenant with somebody by sort of an implied or, or uh, sort of accepted covenant. What does that look like? And what are the terms of such a covenant? Um, you're in a covenant with the person that you're standing in line with at, uh, 
at the grocery store. You're in a covenant because you have an agreement that the person ahead of you will have their groceries checked out uh, before you do, and the person behind you will have their groceries checked out after you do. And so there is an unspoken agreement that these are the rules of conduct in the grocery store. So you're in covenant with total strangers, at least for the time while you stand in that line. And on and on it goes. We're in a covenant that uh, causes us to act or not act according to the common good when we obey the speed limits on the local roads and highways. We are in a covenant with our neighbors when we simply agree that we will all try to maintain our homes in a way that doesn't particularly decrease the value of our other Uh, our neighbors' homes, and so on. So we have covenants all throughout our life. And the real interesting thing that we'll discover as we look at God's covenants is that we're subject to them whether or not we actually obey the terms. And boy, I've already whipped past some of the stuff that I should have done after I prayed. So we better stop and pray right now. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this study. I thank you for this opportunity to be uh, your servant with the folks who listen to this. It is my privilege, Lord, to be the shepherd of your sheep for the moment and to provide them with this information. I often am full of anxiety about my various inadequacies as I go through this process of recording the podcast, but then I imagine, Lord, that somehow... Despite my weakness, you are strong. That somehow you are in covenant with me, not because of my strengths, but because of my willingness to submit to you and to get to be used by you. So I pray, Lord, that what the people hear will bless them and that they will know you better with their hearts and minds and that in a way that only you can cause through the power of the Holy Spirit there might be a synchronicity of your heart and mind and their heart and mind. Amen. St. Paul was an elected or chosen vessel, nay, and speak of great numbers of men as elect according to the foreknowledge of God. You cannot, therefore, deny there is such a thing as election. And if there is, what do you mean by it? I will tell you in all plainness and simplicity, I believe it commonly means one of these two things. First, a divine appointment of some particular men to do some particular work in the world. And this election I believe to be not only personal, but absolute and unconditional. Thus Cyrus was elected to rebuild the temple, and St. Paul with the twelve to preach the gospel. But I do not find this to have any necessary connection with eternal happiness. I believe election means, secondly, a divine appointment of some men to eternal happiness. But I believe this election to be conditional, as well as the reprobation opposite thereto, I believe the eternal decree concerning both is expressed in these words, He that believeth shall be saved, he that believeth not shall be damned. And this decree, without doubt, God will not change, and man cannot resist. According to this, all true believers are in Scripture termed elect, as all who continue in unbelief are so long 
properly reprobates, that is, unapproved of God and without discernment touching the things of the Spirit. Okay, so why did I read that to you? Well, last week we talked a little bit about election, and we dabbled in it in that it was part of this context of of God as being the provider or God's providence. And we basically said that God provided for the salvation of certain people. And we talked just a little bit about how in certain circles, particularly the Calvinistic circles, uh, that is to say John Calvin, a great theologian who uh, gave us many fundamental beliefs that we take for granted, differed from many of his contemporaries and many of us who have followed in one particular way that was uh, more troublesome, let's say, than most. And that was his belief that there was a divine election of certain people that is sort of preordained, and therefore God has already had a certain lottery or something uh, that has, has made it so that only some of us will actually be saved and the rest will not. And the, the implied meaning there is, is that we don't have much to say about it. And Wesley, in his rather, you know, uh, English uh, rational way of thinking, is basically trying to tell us that, yeah, there is a certain kind of election that uh, pertains to God setting apart certain people for certain tasks or certain times, but there is also this election that occurs when we act in faith and receive the benefits of God's covenant. And so, election, as it was described last week in the context of of uh, providence was was stated in a way to indicate to us that God provides the escape route, God provides the lifeboat, God provides the deliverance, and in that way, God's providence is is uh, pre-selected uh, in in a way that makes it possible for us to escape the consequences of sin, and. Uh, we have to accept that, though. And so, in this way, to join the elect people, we have to enter into that covenant. In other words, God provides us with the escape vessel, but we do not escape until we enter into it. And to enter into the escape vessel is to enter into a covenant with God. Um, I don't know how else to put it, but since I like word pictures, I'm going to try to take that escape vessel thing just a tad further and say that if you are on a sinking ship and you enter into a boat that comes alongside the ship, then you're in a covenant relationship with the captain of that boat because that captain has come alongside to rescue you and you have agreed to receive that rescue, but in many ways, you are then subject to the authority of that captain because you've just left your sinking vessel and boarded his vessel or her vessel. And in that respect, you're in a covenant relationship with them. And so, when God provides you with salvation and provides you with a, 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 a certain relationship uh, that saves you, then yes, you've, you've become 
uh, you've, you've been rescued by election. That is to say that God has chosen to rescue people and that God has, through a certain people group, mainly Israel and those who came from the, the people called Israel, which would eventually be Jesus and uh, the apostles, we even we who are not part of that historical culture of Israel are also beneficiaries of this particular election. So God has chosen a certain people for the vessel through which God saves us. And in that respect, God saves the people. And when they accept that gift of salvation, they enter into a covenant with God. And this is the essence of the covenant relationship that God has with people throughout the entire Old Testament. And the story is told over and over again in different methods and forms, but it always starts with God saying there's a great danger coming, like when he was talking to Noah. And God says that there is a great judgment coming. God is intending that there should be a form of deliverance, but it will only happen if you accept God's deliverance and you abide in the terms of God's deliverance. When you were reading throughout the Bible this week, perhaps you discovered some of those truths. Uh, When you were doing your Bible reading, did you notice in Genesis that God gave specific instructions to Noah to maintain God's covenant in the same way, when God called Abraham, there were certain promises God made, but they were based on Abraham's submission and trust in God. That's why Abraham is often referred to as the father of faith. And uh, in the same way that uh, God's covenant with Abraham was fulfilled in so many ways, it was uh, sort of... Uh, distorted and broken as time went on until the people found themselves enslaved by the Egyptians. And it was after the Exodus that God initiated a new covenant with them or renewed the covenant is a better way to put it. It's still the same covenant, but it's renewed and its terms are more specific. And uh, that's where we get the commandments, the Ten Commandments to live by. It's a greater and more in-depth understanding of this covenant relationship we have with God. And uh, the remarkable thing is is that these are basically uh, five commandments. There's just uh, one side of each. One side is about our relationship with God, and the other side is about our relationships with each other. In Psalm 89, we see David speaking to the covenant that God made with him, and in particular, how that covenant changed under the writings of Jeremiah uh, because of the disobedience of the people. And then we read in the 1 Corinthians and uh, some of the other New Testament readings from Hebrews how God has created a new covenant through Jesus Christ. And so, When you're reading your Bible, for example, you're reading, whether you're aware of it, uh, a statement of that reality. For example, when you see the word Old Testament, that's Old Covenant. The Testament is a, a, another example, another word for covenant. And then when you read the New Testament, you're reading the New Covenant. And so, 
God has always been in a covenant relationship with us, and the truth is, is it's either implicit or we are actively participating in it. That's why I went off on that little tangent earlier to suggest that when we are in a relationship with people in a uh, line at the grocery store or something, we're in a covenant relationship with them. It's implied, but it's there. And you ask me how I know, well, why don't you try cutting in front of the person that's ahead of you in the line and see how that goes? Even though you, too, never shook hands on the deal, even though you didn't sign a contract, even though you didn't have a discussion about what would the terms be for this relationship, as soon as you breach the implied covenant, you'll suffer the consequences, you can be sure. And so when God says that we're in a covenant relationship with God, it really doesn't matter whether we've chosen to be a part of that covenant relationship or not. In fact, the covenant with God is to be understood as one that has benefits for those who willingly participate in it, and it has consequences for those who unwillingly uh, participate, or don't participate, I should say, but unwillingly participating in that they are subject to the covenant even though they haven't agreed to its terms. In other words, in the implicit contract between God and creation, the understanding is is that one day God will act in judgment, and those who have not entered into the covenant relationship willingly will be subject to the covenant. Nonetheless, they'll get their punishment because of their ignorance of the covenant. And so when we look at this through God's eyes and think about it as people who are trying to understand the heart and mind of God, it takes on a whole new understanding. And the most exciting news about this understanding is that uh, we have a relationship with God that is built on God's grace. The word grace is something that we Christians tend to use a lot as a way of describing the unmerited favor of God. That is to say that we describe God's grace as being something God gave us through Jesus and the sacrifice Jesus made for us and uh, the fact that we don't deserve it. But if you look at it in the Old Testament, the word is chesed. And it's a Hebrew word that basically doesn't have a parallel in English. And uh, that happens quite frequently, actually. It takes us a whole sentence sometimes to describe the meaning of a single Hebrew word. But basically, it could be translated as a word that means loving kindness or mercy, goodness, love, steadfast love, favor. Whenever we see chesed in the Old Testament, what we're basically seeing is a word that gets translated as grace, but in its particular context, it's really speaking of God's love. And that is different in that it's about how God feels about the people God has made a covenant relationship with. See, when we depersonalize grace and say it's unmerited favor, well, anyone could give that kind of grace. Um, When you read your uh, electric bill or your mortgage or whatever, it'll say you have a grace period. If you haven't made your payment on time, but you do get it in within the grace period, you won't be penalized. Well, that isn't personal. It's not because the lender or the electric company or anybody else you owe loves you. 
They're simply allowing for the fact that there are sometimes troubles in the mail delivery, uh, sometimes, you know, weekends and holidays create delays where it's harder for us to take care of our bills and things. And so they build in a grace period as a, a sort of discipline or a covenant between themselves and the person that owes them money. And so it's nice to take the Old Testament version of Hesed and understand it as more than simply a act of unmerited favor but rather an act of love. In order to really grasp the meaning of God's covenant relationships with humanity, we have to understand that it is a gift of love. That God reaches out to us as a tender father reaches out to uh, his child when the child comes say, repentant for some misdeed, or when the child comes hungry and needy, or when the child comes sad or frightened, and this Father, uh, Heavenly Father, reaches out, this beautiful mother that uh, is, is seeing the, the, the anxiety in their little child's face, this mother reaches out, and there's tenderness there, and the tenderness guides however they're going to respond to whatever it is the child is expressing. And uh, so I guess it would be better to put it this way, if I could make by way of an example, it might be like this. So your child is being a brat. Your little child is misbehaving and acting like a brat and uh, maybe you know, pinching the other child or stealing a toy or something. And, and, and uh, you look at this behavior, and it's not a chronic behavior necessarily, but just some sort of indication that something's not right. And so you, you fuss at the child, and you say, no, no, don't do that. You stomp on the floor and say, young man, young woman, you come over here right now. And, and so you act out of love but uh, an earnestness about your discipline. But then, when the child gets closer and you begin to notice, for example, that the child is slobbering, let's say, uh, more than usual, and so you look carefully into this little toddler's face and their mouth and you see that they're cutting a tooth. And you're filled with compassion. And even though you don't like the way they treated their brother or sister, you recognize what's really going on, that this pain is creating this malfunction in the otherwise sweet disposition. And it, it's a kind of grace that only can come from love. Uh, grace without love would be a decision to give you another chance. And if you don't do it again, you'll be okay. But if you do it again, then I'm going to lower the boom on you. Grace with love says, I understand what's causing your condition, and I don't approve of your behavior, but I understand your behavior. And so you do as much as you can as a parent to mitigate that behavior. You, you put that child uh, in, in a situation where its pain is reduced. Perhaps you give that little toddler something cool to chew on so they can sort of uh, mind that uh, uh, pain that they're suffering. And uh, in the same way, you might uh, separate them from the other children until they're through with this difficult time. And uh, that's grace. 
And now think of it in terms of God of covenant who gives us grace for love's sake. God looks at us and sees us through the eyes of love. And for us as Christians, this idea of God's love and grace being one and the same makes sense when we see how God has made a new covenant through Jesus Christ. It makes sense because we understand that God's covenant is based on our condition. It's based on God's compassion for us, knowing that an awful lot of what troubles us and a lot of our poor behavior can stem directly from our particular attitudes uh, that have been passed on to us through this condition called sin. In other words, we are no longer uh, really dialed into how our particular behavior is offensive to God or, or our brokenness is somehow... Um, uh, a consequence of sin. A lot of the things we do, we don't even understand why we do them. And, uh, and before you think that uh, that makes us all sound a little bit kooky, I would just say to you again, how many times have you seen your child? And I think little boys are particularly good at this, maybe even big boys. And that is that sometimes they do really dumb things. And when you ask them why, they say, I don't know, because they really don't know. And so, there's this story of the consequences of sin. But sin is that tooth that's cutting through the gum and causing us to do what we might not ordinarily do. And God treats us with a certain compassion and adjusts the terms of the covenant in order for us to be able to receive God's loving kindness and grace anyway. And when I speak of sin in this case, it isn't so much the behaviors that we engage in and uh, our particular attitude towards God as it is this whole sin uh, paradigm that's been introduced into the human condition. The Bible tells us that when Satan tempted Adam and Eve and they gave in to the temptation, then they sort of breached the implicit covenant and had to be subject to a uh, a particular covenant. And by that covenant, God is obliged to condemn our sin and therefore condemn the author of sin, Satan. And so as long as Satan has reign over things on earth and as Satan moves to and fro, there will always be this issue of sin. And that sin is an affliction that all of us suffer from. It's something that would be called original sin in some circles. And this is a sort of, of uh, condition that we're born with. And uh, it is a theological concept and a bit of a mystery, but it does explain why a perfectly innocent little child suddenly one day decides to do something devious and uh, and twisted, even if it's just to pinch the daylights out of a sibling or to steal something uh, like a piece of candy from a certain uh, jar or something. And you say, well, why does this child do this? Where did they learn to do that? They didn't have to learn. It was there. It was there. And so the consequence of that 
is condemnation. And it isn't the deed as much as it is the, the impulse to, to do evil. And evil is best understood as anything that's in opposition to God's perfect love. And uh, therefore, sin as a human condition is something that only God can offset like that cutting tooth in the gum with compassion and grace, love and grace. And how does God do it? By sending his own flesh and blood. He creates a means of escape from the consequences of our sin nature. And this means of escape is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And now, when we accept that gift, we enter into the rescue vessel and into an active covenant relationship with the rescuer, the Savior. And so, we're in a covenant by Jesus Christ that he defined, like that night he said at the table with his friends, I'm about to experience something that will be this new covenant between God and all of his creation. And this new covenant will be represented in this bread and this cup, which this covenant was once a representation of God's covenant with Moses and the people of Moses. But now the new covenant through the bread and the cup will be through me. And this is Jesus saying basically that uh, the bread that we eat or that uh, sacrificial lamb uh, that they ate is a, a sign of, of God's wrath passing over. So, in other words, the old covenant was basically established when God said to the people, now, my wrath is going to pass through all the land and even the Israelites are going to be subject to it unless they will eat this unblemished lamb and spread its blood on the doorposts of their homes. And so that became known as the Passover, and that was the, the uh, sort of uh, ceremony of contractual agreement that people went through every year to acknowledge that without God's uh, passing over on account of the death of the lamb and its blood shed, there would have been an equally, uh, equally difficult suffering for all of the people of Israel, too. And Jesus comes along, and in his final act before his sacrificial death, he says, my body will be like that lamb. My blood will be like the lamb's blood. This bread will be the sign of my body that is broken so that your sins can be forgiven. And my blood will be the sign that uh, represents itself in this cup of grape juice or wine that says we are at peace with each other, and it will be written on the doorposts of your life so that when God's wrath comes, it passes you by on account of Jesus's body and blood. And so Jesus says, these are the terms of the new covenant. When you do this, you're part of the covenant. And so, yes, it means participating in the sacrament of Holy Communion, but it also means that we enter into an agreement with God that the only hope we have of being spared from the wrath we deserve for our sin nature is to accept that Jesus' body has paid the price and that Jesus' blood is a sign of our uh, escape from the wrath we justly deserve. That's the covenant that we call the New Testament. And it is the gospel or the good news that we celebrate 
all the time. And just like I said earlier about an implied covenant or one that you participate in, the reality of the covenant is is that you're part of it whether you want to be part of it or not. Those who listen to the terms of the covenant and abide by them actively join in that covenant. And in their lives, it is an expression of a relationship that involves not only the salvation that comes as an act of loving grace from God, but it also involves a changed way of life, a changed way of thinking, and the renewing of our minds. In other words, one of the benefits of the covenant is is that we are no longer the dead human soul that we once were. Now we are a living part of the body of God or the body of Christ through Christ and the covenant Christ makes. And in that way, we become eternal, and our spirits are subject to the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. Now, those who don't participate in that covenant simply don't change. And we can see that. And what's really heartbreaking is is a lot of them go to church, And yet, they're not subjecting themselves to that covenant. They say with their lips, they believe, but they have not really deeply committed themselves to this belief. And so, there is no renewal. There is only a sort of uh, agreement to the terms of the covenant, at least when someone who is partner uh, partners with them in the covenant, so to speak, is around. I, I... guess the best way to put it is is that um, again there's that understanding um, of a covenant that we have in so many aspects of our life whether it's waiting in the line at the grocery store or something else there's a certain understanding that you will you know participate with the established rules but it doesn't necessarily mean that you believe in them or that they have changed your life in any particular way you just go along with it because it's better in some ways than the alternatives this is the way a lot of people experience the God covenant. They go along with it, not because they're particularly committed to it, but because the uh, alternatives don't particularly appeal to them. You know, there are people who could say, I never wait in line and I'll never wait in line as long as I live. And they will push their way through a line and they'll make sure they get waited on first. And people will grumble and complain, but they will ignore that because they just want to go first and everything will be just fine until one day somebody bigger than them comes along and decks them. And then they won't cut in front of that person anymore. And in a way, that's the way a lot of people participate in God's covenant. They simply aren't afraid of the consequences of not taking it seriously, but at the same time, they'd rather not rock the boat if it doesn't benefit them in some way. So my challenge to you is enter into that relationship with God that is covenantal in that you are a saved person. Saved by God's rescue as he came alongside you in the total depravity of your sin and saved you from a wrath that you justly deserve. And he rescues you as Christ is the vehicle of your salvation. And as the vehicle owner and operator of your salvation, of that vehicle, then Christ gets to have the covenant relationship with you 
and you agree to those terms, and you live as a follower of Christ, you live as a disciple of Christ, you abide in Christ and the Holy Spirit, and you choose to do and be things that are consistent with discipleship in Jesus Christ. These are the terms of the covenant. They won't save you. That's already been done. The terms of the covenant are more about an agreed lifestyle and a meaningful lifestyle. And the interesting thing about the covenants of God is because they're made out of grace and love, they're terms that are better for us. They're terms that make our lives more meaningful and rich and full and alive. They're terms that transcend the living existence of our flesh, terms that are the same whether you're on this side of heaven or the next. Well, I hope you've enjoyed today's uh, study of covenant with God. We've learned that because we are the church and we believe in God as a covenant maker, we will consciously and intentionally accept God's covenant as a member of God's community of faith. On Calvin, strong covenant God, save us from being self-centered in our prayers, and teach us to remember to pray for others. May we be so bound up in love with those for whom we pray that we may feel their needs as acutely as our own and intercede for them with sensitivities, with understanding, and with imagination. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. And so what is John Calvin saying there? to pray for others with the grace, the loving grace that God has given to us. Thank you for supporting this podcast by listening, and I pray that you will also try to help to support it in any way you can, simply by your prayers and uh, for uh, anyone who's able to be a part of it in, uh, in a financial way, then, you know, if you'll send a offering to Shiloh United Methodist Church. That would be greatly uh, a great blessing to us as a way of fulfilling uh, our mission and uh, accepting that this is a vital part of that mission. Um, you can visit shilohum.org to learn more about the church and about me, and uh, you can also communicate with me by using the links there associated with my name, and uh, I'd like very much to hear from you. And uh, I hope this continues to be of value to you, and uh, if it is, well, tell somebody you know about it and, and ask them to join in the study with us. But for now, I want to ask God's blessing upon you as I pray in loving grace for you and all those you love. God bless you. Goodbye.